What is good? Welcome back to Ballin' with Tyler Todd. This is your host, Tyler Todd. Thank you for bearing with me. Took a nice little week off for Christmas, but we're getting back right into it. No more downtime. Getting back into the flow of things. First, we're going to start off with this pretty awesome article from NFL. And it's eight burning questions as NFL playoff picture comes into view. Okay, so... Yeah, this past week of football was pretty interesting, had some big upsets, and yeah, so let's just jump right into it. So the first question is, are the Packers a lock for the NFC's number one seed? And the answer is yes. They have two regular season games remaining, home against the Vikings and away versus the Lions. While neither is a given, I don't see the Packers losing either. Minnesota beat them last month with the field goal as time expired and has won one and one in Green Bay the previous three seasons, but the Packers should be healthier and more rested after playing at home Saturday. This year's Vikings are talented, but wildly inconsistent. In fact, they haven't had a winning streak or losing streak in excess of two games. As for Detroit, it's a team that plays hard and is competitive each week, but it lacks the overall talent to close out games against an opponent playing as well as Green Bay, which has been the most consistently high-performing club this season, and that's true. Second question on the list, will anyone catch the Chiefs for the number one seed in the AFC? More likely, no, no one will. Kansas City has won eight in a row and is playing with tremendous confidence and efficiency. Many will focus on the offense coming around after early season struggles. The Chiefs have scored 34 or more in four of the last six, but the key is the defense, which has held all but one opponent to 17 points or less during the winning streak. The Chiefs close at Cincinnati and Denver but it's hard to see either beating them at this point, particularly with Kansas City knowing it would lose a tiebreaker with Tennessee for the top spot based on its earlier loss to the Titans. And I don't know. It's just they're so... I mean, what a complete 180 from the beginning of the season. Chiefs were really not not playing well. Seemed like everybody had figured them out. Hey, make a couple midseason adjustments, boom. Literally, arguably the best team in the AFC right now. Third question on the list, which of the five NFC teams that have secured playoff spots do you trust the least? The Packers, Cowboys, Buccaneers, and Cardinals have all clinched postseason spots. Arizona, which has lost three in a row, including a blowout defeat at lowly Detroit, is definitely playing the worst of the bunch. On December 5th, the Cardinals looked like a lock to win the NFC West, and were holding on to the top seed with a 10-2 record, but little has gone right since then. With quarterback Kyler Murray struggling, wideout DeAndre Hopkins out until the playoffs, the defense giving up big plays with surprising frequency, and even a potential playoff home game not an advantage. They're 3-4 and four at home. It's hard to believe in Cliff Kingsbury's team. Hmm, yeah, literally started off as the team, NFL's hottest team, and they are one recently, in recent weeks, three weeks have been the worst. Next question, yes, take a jab at my Chargers. Question number four, because they deserve it. Which Chargers team will we see in the final two weeks, and will it be enough to get in? Mm, Who knows? Yeah, who knows? No team excels at losing winnable games like the Chargers. (laughs) Ha ha ha, thanks. Who thought they had shed that label last month when they hung on to beat the Steelers after squandering a big lead? But every time we buy in, okay, every time I buy in, the, the Bolts revert to form, the regular form. We always are used to seeing and being disappointed. They beat the Chiefs and Browns en route to a 4-1 start, then lost two in a row. They won a primetime game against the Steelers, then got embarrassed at Denver. They routed the Bengals and Giants, 
then fell to the Chiefs and Texans. And please, don't tell me they were missing a handful of starters Sunday at Houston. Lots of squads have been without key starters and won against bad teams. At this point, they're on the outside looking in with a number of outsiders doubting them, which can only mean one thing. They will find a way into the playoffs. They have too much talent not to make it, right? Or is that just something we say every year? Hmm, yep, same old broken record, dude. Next question, question number five. How much should we trust Matthew Stafford in the playoffs? The Rams have no choice but to trust him after pushing all their chips to the middle of the table to acquire him. But it's hard for me to have faith in Stafford when I see him do rookie things when confronted with pressure. He threw a horrible interception against the Titans when hurried, and Sunday, he had another against the Vikings that was equally bad. Stafford is a veteran who knows the importance of ball security and how it's better to take a sack than panic and throw the ball up for grabs. He has the talent and personnel to erase those mistakes against lesser teams, but not against the clubs he will face in the playoffs, which happens to be where Stafford is 0-3. Now on to question number six. Which NFC team that hasn't clinched is the most dangerous? Part of me wants to say the Vikings, who have been in 14 one-possession games, but the correct answer is the 49ers, who, prior to the loss in Tennessee, appeared to have found their rhythm. Quarterback play is heightened in the postseason, which means Jimmy Garoppolo will face even greater scrutiny than he has to date, and San Francisco will only go as far as he takes it. It's no secret the 49ers made the blockbuster trade to acquire Trey Lance in the draft because they didn't think Garoppolo had the goods to stay healthy and win them a championship. Eh, yeah, understandable, because those are all the things that I feel about Jimmy Garoppolo. But he is the most NFL-ready of the two at this point, and he did help them reach the Super Bowl two seasons ago, so there is that. All right, next question. Got two more. Question number seven. Which AFC bubble team is the most dangerous? I'm going to eat the cheese again and say the Chargers. When you have six Pro Bowlers, which is more than any team but the Chiefs and Colts, the talent is there to make a run. And you have a quarterback as talented as Justin Herbert, the talent is there to make a run. And when you have defensive standouts such as Joey Bosa and Duran James, the talent is there to make a run. So Chargers, how about it? You can actually do something for once? Jeez. Last question on the list, number eight. Why no love for the Dolphins? Came really close to selecting them as the AFC's most dangerous bubble team, but I need to see more. The rally from a 1-7 start has been impressive, but the wins were against the Texans, 4-11, Giants, 4-11, Jets twice, 4-11, Panthers, 5-10, and, and Ravens, 8-7. That will never be confused as Murderer's Row. I don't hold that against them. The Dolphins didn't make the schedule, which, by the way, will be working in their favor Monday night with the Saints likely starting their third-string quarterback. Again, not their fault, but shoulder shrug. Can't see it. And there you have it, folks. Eight, eight glaring questions for the playoff picture. Some interesting little tidbits right there. And, yeah, very all understandable. No one will catch the Chiefs. Packers will probably be the team representing the NFC in the Super Bowl. The Chargers hopefully can get in with two games against Denver and Las Vegas to end the season. And the Dolphins, like I said, even though they've beaten all those crappy teams, they are one of the more, I mean, they are talented. They've just, it took a long time to get their groove going. And then Stafford, I still think he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. But yeah, has been struggling with pressure this year. And some games really just kind of all over the place at some point. But now, enough with the NFL, and this is going to be the last thing we have, is an NBA article from CBSSports.com. And it's about the Lakers, and anybody who knows the Lakers right now, they're playing, um, yeah, you know, just not good basketball. Really one of the worst teams in uh, the Western Conference right now, and 
pretty much their plan of having LeBron, Russ, and Anthony Davis is not working. One, because Anthony Davis is still hurt, and he's always hurt, and he's never playing. And Russ and LeBron, it's hard for the dynamic of those two players to play with each other, let alone than adding an Anthony Davis. So it's just very, it's very tough. So in this article, we have a little tidbit on why it's time for the Lakers to explore a Russell Westbrook for John Wall trade. Okay, so yeah, that yeah, that would be maybe something that they should pursue. But let's take a deeper dive into it. So here we go. The Lakers sacrificed the bones of their top of their top ranked defense in nearly all of their matching salary to trade for a player whose skill set overlaps with LeBron James. So I said earlier that like, I mean it. So they have a very similar skill set, but it's like hard to play them together, if that makes sense. Like it's, I don't know. That's just my opinion. They've paid a price for that, obviously. The Lakers were 23 and 11 through 34 games a season ago. They're 16 and 18 now, and their net rating has fallen from fifth to 23rd. That isn't to say he's entirely to blame here. This is talking about Westbrook. He's even taken baby steps toward fitting in with his more accomplished teammate. He's launching his fewest three pointers since the 2011 12 season. And he's devoting more than half of those attempts to catch and shoot looks, which he's typically made at a slightly higher clip than pull-ups. His usage rate is down to only 27.9%, the lowest figure he's posted since his second NBA season. And he's cut his mid-range attempts per game nearly in half from 6.1 last season to 3.1 this season. So reading that, the reason why they're down is because he's not on a he's on a team now where he doesn't have to do all that kind of work. When he was in OKC, he really was like the only kind of like star guy that, you know, all the rosters that he was on, he really was the it guy. Hey, now you have Anthony Davis and LeBron James. You're going to have to take it. You're going to have to slow down a little bit. <laughs> These are notable but minor changes. The Lakers are still devoting nearly seven shots per game to ineffective Westbrook jumpers, and 27.9 is still a fairly high usage rate for a guard that struggles to make shots. He's turning the ball over as frequently as ever, and he remains a paradoxically poor defender the sort of player that prides himself on effort yet expends it inconsistently where his team isn't the one that's trying to score. The promising ball screens he was setting for James earlier in the season have mostly faded out of the offense, and while he's cutting slightly more than usual, nobody would would mistake his growth for the progress Dwayne Wade made in the arena when he forced to adjust LeBron's presence. He is, in other words, Russell Westbrook. That's what makes blaming him for all this team's woes so unfair. He is essentially a slightly older version of the player he's been for his entire career. If the Lakers expected wholesale stylistic changes just because he was joining a contender, well, they weren't watching him closely enough in Oklahoma City or Houston. The the Lakers, largely due to his $44 million salary, did him a disservice by cheaping out on Alex Caruso and depriving him of a proper defensive backcourt mate. They unwisely loaded up on a redundant ball handlers rather than the Rather than the shooters and defenders, Westbrook needed to thrive alongside James. It's not his fault that the Lakers don't particularly need what he brings to the table and desperately lack what he doesn't. But Westbrook hasn't exactly lived up to his end of the bargain either. The theoretical benefit of acquiring him was that it would allow the Lakers to limit LeBron's minutes and survive the ones he's missed. Well, 37-year-old LeBron is playing almost 37 minutes per night. When Westbrook plays without him, the Lakers are getting outscored by 7.4 points per 100 possessions. He isn't easing anyone's burden, and he's not keeping the Lakers afloat in their most vulnerable moments. 
Westbrook has a history of improving significantly as season as seasons progress, but it's worth asking how meaningful that improvement would even be to this Lakers team. The number 27th ranked Lakers offense could certainly use more transition scoring and better efficiency at the rim from Westbrook, but what can he do to encourage more off-ball movement in teammates? The Lakers rank 18th in three-point percentage and 22nd in attempts. There's not much Westbrook himself could be doing to improve those rankings when he's not a threat from behind the arc himself. Better defensive effort would be appreciated, but size and schematic reliability are weaknesses he'll seemingly never grow out of. All these factors have come together to make the Lakers the most disappointing team in the NBA, and it's not particularly surprising. The Lakers put Westbrook in a poor position to succeed, and he, in turn, created artificial roster building and on-court restraints that were visible to pretty much everyone outside of the organization from the moment the trade was announced. With Anthony Davis still injured and one of the NBA's hardest remaining schedules, the playoffs are no longer even a certainty. Even if the Lakers never dreamed it could get this bad, it's now a truth they can no longer avoid. Almost half of the season is gone. This experiment isn't working. The time to to seriously explore alternatives is right now. The problem they're going to face is that there aren't that many available. Most players in Westbrook's salary range are significantly more valuable. Even if the Lakers are willing to trade him for Ben Simmons, for example, it just seems enormously unlikely that Philadelphia would consider such a proposal. Go down the list of very highly paid players that aren't superstars. Would Dallas send Kristaps Porzingis out in a Westbrook trade? Probably not. Would Boston delve deeper into the tax and Al Horford base swap? Highly doubtful. Cleveland has a good thing going. Why would the Cavs reunite Kevin Love with James just to take on $47 million in Westbrook's salary for next season when Darius Garland is already better than him? Question mark. There just aren't many feasible trades out there. Few teams want inefficient lead ball handlers like Westbrook. Fewer have salaries that can feasibly be traded for him. The only one that makes immediate sense is a player he's already been traded for. John Wall's contract is identical to Westbrook's. He holds no on-court value to the Houston Rockets as their youth movement has kept him off the floor entirely. He is represented by Rich Paul, the leader of Clutch Sports that also serves as the agent for LeBron James and Anthony Davis. With all this in mind, might some sort of Westbrook for Wall be worthwhile to the Lakers? Well, the immediate answer is probably not. Wall comes with many of the same limitations as Westbrook. He's never been a particularly strong shooter. And with his 31st birthday and multiple significant injuries in the rearview mirror, it isn't clear how much he has left in the tank defensively either. But Wall has at least been an effective defender in the past. He earned all-star defensive honors in 2015. And while he's declined since then, the Lakers could at least trust him to play hard and stick to the script on on that end of the floor. Even without the speed that once made him special, there's something to be said for reliability on a team with so many incapable defenders. A deeper dive into his shooting numbers paints a slightly more optimistic picture as well. Wall may be only a 32.3% point career three-point shooter, but he's hovered around 38% on wide open and catch and shoot three since the NBA started tracking those looks during the 2013-14 season. Those are the sort of shots the Lakers need their non-LeBron perimeter players to make more than the low percentage pull-ups that primary ball handers like Wall and Westbrook are often forced into. For as much as Wall has seemingly lost physically, his raw numbers from last season are far closer to Westbrook's now than the Lakers should be comfortable with. Wall shooting 55.4% in the restricted area last season was borderline disastrous by his standards, but Westbrook is at just 58% this season despite significantly more surrounding talent. Wall ranked in the 21st percentile in in terms of efficiency 
as a transition scorer last season, according to Synergy Sports, but Westbrook ranks in just the 18th percentile this season. Both were roughly average in pick and roll and spot up situations. Wall scored more points, 20.6 to 19.6, but so did slightly less efficiently. 48.5 effective field goal percentage for Westbrook compared to 45.8 for Wall. Westbrook's superior rebounding is the primary statistical difference here. If Wall's declining, so is Westbrook. That gets to the crux of the issue here. Wall probably can't say the Lakers for many of the same reasons Westbrook isn't fitting in with them. This roster, with 10 minimum salary players, is so fundamentally flawed that no sub-all-star caliber player like Wall Westbrook could single-handedly fix it. So why would the Lakers explore such a trade? Because this mix isn't working and trading one player, even a $44 million player, is more realistic than trading 10 of them. The Lakers can't remake their entire supporting cast in the middle of the season. They can't go back in time and bring Caruso back or better allocate their resources in free agency. This is the team that they have. They might be able to change it, but they can't overhaul it entirely. Even if a wall trade doesn't fix everything, it offers theoretical benefits that could potentially revitalize a team that is in desperate need of a revitalization. It might help, but who cares if it doesn't? The current team isn't working either. If there's a better deal out there, the Lakers should take it. In the likely event that there isn't, doing something is still better than nothing. That brings us to the matter of cost. The Rockets have no incentive to help the Lakers. They also have four more leverage here. While they vigorously shopped Wall, they have never done so from a position of desperation. They certainly appear comfortable keeping Wall benched until his contract expires. They have no intention of competing in that time frame anyway. The Lakers do. They can't just wait out Westbrook's contract in part because James is about to turn 37 and in part because James can become a free agent in 2023 when Westbrook's deal expires. Their window to win is right now, and the Rockets know that. If the Lakers prefer Wall, the Rockets can bleed them dry, even if they're just trading one player they have no intention of using for another. That makes building an exact deal framework difficult. The Lakers have four of their own second-round picks and three external second-rounders to offer in a deal, and they'd surely prefer to offer those. The Rockets, who have taken a very public long view of roster building, would surely ask for the lone first-round pick that the Lakers can legally trade at the moment, that pick would come in either 2027 or 2028. The Lakers would likely balk at that request. There's no telling which side would blink first, and it would be an epic staring contest. The Lakers, knowing the Rockets have no other no other wall offers on the table, would try to hold firm, knowing they would essentially be offering Houston free draft picks. The Rockets, in turn, would know that the Lakers have no alternate Westbrook deals to pivot into and could therefore play hardball, knowing that they have no immediate need to make a deal. That game of chicken is just one of the many obstacles to a deal here. In all likelihood, even if the Lakers have explored Westbrook deals, they're probably going to end up keeping him through the end of the season at least. They're, they just shouldn't be surprised if doing so continues to produce the lackluster results they've received all season. Yes, I agree. The Lakers are horrible, and it's not Westbrook's fault, but definitely is contributing to the how, bad, how poorly the team is playing. But anyway, thank you for checking back in with me. Seriously, thank you, because I took that week off. It felt good, been busy, but holiday week, obviously Christmas week, just wanted to you know, just take a breather and potentially maybe hitting at the idea of just maybe doing one episode a week so that I can really focus on it because doing two jobs, this, and just many other things, it just it's hard to do two episodes in a week because that was when I had a lot of time and I didn't have you know two jobs or just a job at the time. So maybe reducing the podcast just to one episode so we can really – 
hone in and make each episode very awesome and very, you know, immersive for the listeners, you guys. So thank you for being patient with me with that. And just thank you for being that patient that last week because I didn't have any episodes up, but I have this one for you. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you on the next one. Peace.